we're talking evolution on this week in Moab today, radio evolution, that is, with Christina Young of Science Moab. Very excited to have this minute with you. I'm super excited to talk to you as well. Science Moab started as a weekly radio show on KZMU and quickly grew into a hugely popular podcast exploring the science and learning about the scientists from southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. But just lately, it has had quite the growth spurt. It is my distinct pleasure to speak with Christina today because I go back with her and science radio uh, to kind of the beginning. Through the years, there have been hundreds of DJs and shows and great ideas that I think of as sparky. As the former program director of KZMU, it was my pleasurable job to spot them and encourage them and, you know, train them and all that. Now, most shows live only as long as the living spark of enthusiasm, that that spare time of the volunteer uh, life will allow. And so when Christina came up to the station, uh, loaded with spark and curiosity for simply learning sound editing, you know, the, the germinating idea for a weekly radio show on science was more than a dream come true to everybody, part of the station at that time. But also a super ambitious project for volunteer production. And you might say I had my hypothesis about Christina Young, which confirmed, by the way. I can't quite say, however, that I saw it growing into its own nonprofit with its own cadre of sound editors and even Vista positions or a massively popular podcast with the local fan base that thronged to Science Moab on Tap, a beloved pre- and post-COVID series of live lectures about local science at Woody's Tavern in downtown Moab. Okay, and all that I've listed so far isn't even the big news for today. Newly minted nonprofit Science Moab hatched a genius plan, a school-to-science program that pairs Grand County High School juniors and seniors with local and visiting scientists for internships and job shadowing. And I mean, it's amazing. How did they do that? That's all going to happen with Grand County High School. It's real now. Well, we'll let Christina tell us and uh, get to some audio highlights that make your head explode uh, with possibility. Christina, an ecologist, again, studying the Earth's arid, semi-arid regions, we join today from our various homes right here in Moab. Again, Christina, thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for talking to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so congratulations again from kind of lo-fi to worldwide, right? Yeah, that's that's been the trajectory. And I just want to, you know, shout out to what you were saying. Uh, you and the KZMU staff have been the reason all of this has been possible. So um, huge love for KZMU from the very beginning. Mm, thank you. I mean, what a journey. In the prep for this interview, you took me to a moment that you knew this was no longer a local radio show, but actually a whole entity of its own with a board and emission statements and everything. 
And you spoke about the recognition from someone else as a key. And I thought that was really um, cool. Could you take us there for listeners and maybe muse on that one piece, the key of somebody else recognizing its bigger potential is important for you? Absolutely. Um, I love this story because it just shows that it takes such a community, you know, to make things happen. Um, so, yeah, so Science Moab was a radio show. And, um, you know, uh, over the time, you know, I like you mentioned, I, I came up to KZMU and uh, asked if I could learn how to, you know, start producing producing radio um and then over time we've grown and had more producers and uh, peggy hodgkins has joined the team she's been amazing and so science Moab is kind of growing and we were trying to figure out a way to bring in some money for the radio show um and i was sitting there with dear sarah and molly up at kzmu and um they were helping me write a grant and so molly and sarah were reading over the text and it was kind of me describing um you know, the purpose of Science Moab um, and kind of the vision uh, of, of what the radio show was. And, and after reading it, Molly just turned to me and she said, you know, Christina, this this is bigger than a radio show. Like, this could be its own organization one day. Um, and just hearing somebody say that out loud, <laughs> it was like... Um, this this moment where you know maybe this vision wasn't so crazy maybe there was something there um that was you know bigger than these ideas that we were kind of carrying around quietly um and so yeah so then that night i went home and googled how to start a nonprofit, and i called peggy and our other volunteers and i'm like we're doing it we're gonna this can be something um and so that was a big moment for us i I love little moments also like uh, the Science on Tap events were signaled to me, like brachiopods and beer, uh, or a scientist and a microphone and a spark walking to the bar. I mean, it's genius. Uh, Discuss. Yeah, I mean, I wish I could take credit for any of these ideas, but I can't. These are just ideas that, you know, people have come to us with and people who also love science and love this place and this community. And so... um, you know, about a year before our first Science on Tap event, um, I was sitting around on the porch with some friends drinking beer, and we were talking about, you know, what we were going to do that weekend, or, you know, what what was going on around town, Um, and Katie Creighton, who is a fish biologist here in town, she said, you know, it's kind of crazy that we don't, like, pair beer with science more often, and then we were all just like, why don't we pair beer with science more often? <laughs> and that's kind of where it started. We're just sitting there being like, oh my gosh, that's the best idea. And we knew other communities had, you know, some kind of science on tap thing, but Moab's so unique and so special. And so we just saw really quickly that Woody's is, you know, the obvious venue for that kind of thing. And um, it took off the response from the community for those events was so special for all of us. Like, when you hit on that place where your deepest desires meet the world's greatest need. And and this led to yet more uh, growth and evolution, lots of nourishment. Uh, there is a new initiative, and I think we shouldn't go any further without just celebrating this uh, rather major development. You, you, you now are not just a radio show or a podcast or anything. It's an initiative. 
take take me to where you decided, you know what, we need to go to the Social Investors Fund? Absolutely. Um, so, you know, like you mentioned, Southeast Utah, Moab in particular, is a place where a ton of science is happening. Um, there is people from around the world who come here to do science, to study this landscape, and then there are world-renowned scientists in this community um, who have been doing science here for decades. Um, But when people think about Moab, science might not be the first thing that comes to their mind, but I think it it should be. It should be one of the one of those things because we it's like we're kind of a, a science hotspot when you think about this region. I mean, my goodness, the the raw material for incredible scientific advances for better or for worse came from Moab, you know, uranium. And so it kind of it goes back a long time. Yuri Curie came to Moab. And so this place has a long relationship with science that really hasn't been um, at the forefront of kind of the narrative around Moab and hasn't been used by the community in a way that could benefit us. And so the radio shows, the live talks, all of this was this kind of this greater vision, right, of of celebrating the, the science and the knowledge that's been gained here um, and, you know, also the the indigenous knowledge too, when you talk about science, a different, a different form of science, but still a very relevant and very longstanding one that has occurred in this region for time immemorial. So, you know, there's a lot to celebrate. And so the radio show and the live events were, were celebrating that with the community saying, you know, let's, let's make sure this science doesn't get stuck behind paywalls. Let's make, you know, in, in scientific journals, let's make sure that it's accessible to everybody and that we could all learn about it as it's happening. As these papers are being published, we can celebrate it as a community and we can make sure that we could, you know, benefit from everything that's happening here. All of the science, all of these people who are coming here to understand this place, let's make sure that the local community is a part of that. And so, um, Robin uh, Roybold is a uh, chemist here at the USGS. He works at the chemistry lab. And he had mentioned a while ago how he would have loved to be able to uh, do an internship with a student. He, you know, was wanting to mentor students. He'd been mentored as a, you know, a a high school student um, where he grew up and he was wanting to have that experience, but there was just no way for there was no avenue for him to be able to you know work with students or uh or help them get into the cool science that he was doing about the moab area and so he mentioned that to us at science moab and we were like my gosh you know this is the next step clear clear as day you know there's a need here to um make sure that the community can engage with the science that's science that's going on and so that's where the school to science program was born um we decided that there's are we saw that there was already a great uh structure for this kind of program in place through the career and technical education program at the high school um that offers credits to uh to students to do internships or job shadowing opportunities and we said why couldn't those internships or job shadows be with scientists um and so we took the idea to the community foundation of utah they've had a you know an open call for for grants for their social investors forum where they invest in ideas that are for the social good um and they liked our pitch they saw the they saw the need and the the value just as we did so it was very exciting 
Uh, very exciting indeed. And so 35,000, and you have volunteers like, who do I want to hear more about? She was in your uh, pitch. Uh, Larea? Yes. Yes, Larea is amazing. And so Larea is a teacher here in town, and she was a big part in you know, because she she saw that, she knew that side of the community, um, you know, the education and the schools, and she, you know, been involved in all in all of that. She, you know, she knew the needs, and she knew, um, you know, what does she help envision what this program could look like. And so Larea has been a big part in, in developing it and making it possible. In addition to School to Science Initiative, you're spearheading a science certification program for local guide companies, this is cool. Thanks. We think so, too. Yeah, this was uh, a brainchild. Again, everybody comes to us <laughs> with these great ideas of uh, Natalie Day, who um, is a USGS uh, hydrologist. And, um, you know, she, uh, you know, had this idea that, like, man, we need to get more science in the hands of our guides and our guide companies in this town because they are the ones who are communicating to, you know, the 3 million people who come to Moab each year. And if they had um, more knowledge, more access to the kind of newer science that's coming out um, about this place and they could translate it in a way that uh, lets people know how this place works, um, how to tear, how to take care of it when they're visiting it, and then also gets people more engaged and being more excited about science in general. Uh, and and I wonder how many millions of people have asked it of our tour guides. Um, why is Red Rock red? And how many guides then are unable to say until we have something like lay science to help us understand. Uh, the dynamics of it, you know. So, um, I just, I just want to all hail the multidisciplinary Bennies and thank everybody involved just for me, because I get so clearly these metaphors when I listen to well clarified phenomenons in our natural world. You know, this sort of biomimicry. It helps me not only understand something like the meaning of e- uh, dynamic equilibrium in the landscape but how we all stand firm or how we give way and how we change. And so, um, yeah, from over here in liberal arts corner, I just want to, I guess, uh, celebrate scientific reporting that's really accessible. Yeah, it's it's not easy to do. And, um, you know, like you're saying, like a lot, I mean, I, our guides, the guides out there have a ton of knowledge already too. Like it's not that they need scientists or anybody needs scientists to come down on high and say like, this is how the world works. It's just that there's new information that is not always accessible. And until like you're saying somebody who is privy to this information because they're a part of, of, you know, studying these systems, um, you know, having that person be able to translate it in a way that resonates with people. Um, so then in this case, hopefully they can have it resonate with, with all of our visitors. That's really, it's a, it's the goal here. And it's, uh, it's not easy to do, but it's super possible to do when you're standing in a place, you know, you're standing on the landscape and you're, you're asking questions about it. Um, 
you know, it's much easier to translate some of these bigger, you know, scientific concepts um, because, you know, you're talking about these places that we're so familiar about and you're talking about tangible things. So it's, it's pretty special. Going back to Pangea in order to describe why rust never sleeps and how our big rock bed is red. It, it just sort of leads me into the thing that inspires questions. What do you love about being a scientist? Um, my goodness. I mean, uh, I just love trying to understand the world. Um, and, you know, this world in Moab in particular is just so special to me. And we don't really know as much as you think we know about it. There's still so many outstanding questions. And so I love doing science because um, it really lets us ask questions. And then it gives us a, a framework to try to answer those questions through experimentation and observation. Um, and there's just nothing I really love more than thinking about this desert. You know, I'm an ecologist. Um, I love your rock metaphors, but I've been told by geologists I'm not allowed to talk about rocks <laughs> because, I, because I don't know a ton about them. But my gosh, when, you, when I think about the ecology of this area um, and this desert, I just love spending my time trying to think about how it works. I, I want to ask you a little bit more specifically about your own deal. You know, you explore fragile ecosystems and how they interact with human land use and a changing climate, dry lands in particular. How's your research going? Um, it's going well. It's, uh, you know, it's always so interesting to... Um, try to understand, like I said, these desert places that are that are fragile um, and changing. And so um, trying to figure out how they work and then trying to figure out um, how we can, you know, best interact with them. Um, that's the, the kind of the, the beauty of science is it gives us tools. It tells us cause and effect. You know, it doesn't it, it tells us you, can, you do this thing and this thing is, is what's going to happen. And so that's really valuable when you're thinking about landscapes and deserts um, in particular in this place when, you know, when you, when, when this thing changes or when, you know, this, this management type happens or, um, you know, uh, this desert is treated this way, then these are going to be the, the effects. And so I study um, the effects mostly on on the soil crusts you know our, our amazing bio crusts cryptogamic soil um, I study kind of you know uh, what roles they're playing in the ecosystem what they're doing in the desert um, the things that can damage them uh, and then also trying to think about how we put them back so how do we restore these desert places so that the the important functions you know the important services that the biocrusts provide like soil stability um in our desert like how can we get that back onto the landscape so that we have these healthy you know uh, resilient desert ecosystems explain for me briefly if you if you will uh the difference between desertification and a healthy desert oh that's a great question um so uh yeah, so deserts are not all the same. We know that. We live in one. But not everybody knows that, you know. Not everybody knows that the desert here in, in Moab is going to look really different than the Sonoran Desert with the big saguaros and everything down there. And so, um, 
you know, each each desert has its own uh, flora and fauna. You know, it has its own plants and animals and soil types and everything like that. And um, when they're, you know, kind of doing their thing and intact and kind of haven't been, you know, disturbed in these big ways, um, they can, they're just deserts, you know. <laughs> but what happens um, when there's some kind of disturbance? And so, say you know, an area gets completely plowed over or say the climate changes abruptly, you know, not just our human caused climate change, but, you know, climate change periods, climate oscillations in the past. Um, what happens is kind of that, that level of, of, of life, right? The level of productivity. So the, the plants and the animals that could live in a place because that were, you know, that have evolved there and evolved to the, to the amount of rain that falls each year, when you know those, when some kind of big disturbance comes in and and disturbs that life that evolved to a specific type of conditions, then the desert can start to degrade, and so you start losing that life. You start, you know, those communities start changing, and they they uh, have different functions. And so usually, what happens is the place becomes less productive, which just means there's less there's less plant life, there's less, you know, there's less animal life, there's less soil stability. And so when, when a desert becomes disturbed in that kind of way, we call it being desertified. So that's a desertification is where a place changes so that it's kind of less productive maybe than it, than it was. And so just because a desert is a desert <laughs> doesn't mean it's desertified, um, which is, you have a negative connotation, rightfully so. Um, but when a desert is not as productive as the kind of climatic variables, the, you know, the climate, the rain, the the um, the amount of sun, when you know, when, when it's not as productive as it could be given its its environment, then it that's sort of desertified area. Does that make sense? It certainly does. Great. I just uh, I love the simplest questions, you know, and. Yeah, and and how science approaches answering them. Like I was hearkening back to the uh, Permian extinction um, segment that you did, and the scientist was describing uh, how these, how the inland sea hardened and softened and wettened and dried to make it basically rust oxidized red. So. I don't know. I just love how it ignites my imagination. I just go off thinking about time and deep time. Um, tell me, tell me what just sends you into daydream question land. Yeah, the same. I mean, the uh, the episode that you're talking about. My gosh, he blows my mind, and I often find that the things I know least about or understand the least I get, I can get really excited about because they just make me think differently. And so, like I said, I have a hard time envisioning geologic time and processes. I just don't think well that way. Um, but gosh, when people try to explain it to me, it just, I just look at the world differently. Um, we had a, you know, an, a science small lab on tap event with Chris Benson, our, our resident amazing geologic communicator and he's changed the way I look at uh the gravel pit behind the bowling alley or the the terraces that lead to uh that lead to left hand you know the the um you know the terraces along like you know the, the taller terraces as you walk up upstream um I just you know I can't get enough of 
understanding the forces and the processes that created this this landscape around us. It's just too cool. Yeah, I agree. Thank you for sharing a little bit of, you know, the enthusiasm. And now I I have to follow up. I have to follow up about the gravel bed. <laughs> Can you do a synopsis? Is there any way, or is it is it? Oh my gosh! I mean, I, I would get it so wrong. I mean, <laughs> they're so much older than I thought. There's so much more to them. That's you know, it's has to do with glaciation in the LaSalle. So the, you know, the LaSalle used to have glaciers on them, and when you know those glaciers were melting and all this water was coming down, it was depositing these huge gravel beds that we see around us, and. I, there's just no way I would have ever known that without Chris telling me, you know, and, and I, you know, it, I don't even know if I would have had the words or the, the inclination to ask the question in the right way, which is what I think science communication, why it's so fun to, to engage with scientists and people who really, you know, study these places deeply um, because they, they tell you things that you wouldn't have had the language to even ask. And I just find that really exciting. Well, I'm glad you brought up language. And that uh, leads me to say that the the difference, the lay science or people who, as you put it, is there such a like a, a term? I am a, communi- a geologic communicator. If so, it's so apt. Because uh, communicating it in language that's not steeped in jargon We're going to play a clip about erosion and the river dynamics that put Moab at what is called the Nick Point. Christina talks here with Dr. Joel Peterson in an episode called How a River Shaped a Plateau, Understanding Erosion and the Colorado River. The Colorado River, over the last few million years, as the Colorado River has come into being, there is a very important point where the river finally crossed the edge of the Colorado Plateau in western Grand Canyon and started making its way through the low country of the Basin and Range and, you know, near Las Vegas on its way down to Mexico. And uh, the Colorado Plateau, of course, sits high above the Basin and Range. The key thing that happens is once the Colorado River gets off of the high plateau in western Grand Canyon and into the Lake Mead area, then that caused what we call a base level drop way at the downstream end of the Colorado Plateau. And it, it's, it's too dramatic, but you can imagine if a river makes its way off of a plateau, it might be a cascading waterfall, you know, into some lowland. And that, that waterfall, or more broadly, we'd call it a nick point um, or a nick zone in geology, that steep area um, gradually works its way upstream through the river systems. And so it's actually geologically very possible that once the river got integrated and went to the sea off the edge of the plateau, it has taken a few million years of time for that wave of incision to work its way upstream to the Moab area. And in fact, uh, that is a primary hypothesis that we're seeing evidence for, and that is that erosion in the central plateau is a recent wave of erosion that's been working from downstream to upstream. And part of that might be because it's just delayed from when the river finally got off of the high plateau way down in Grand Canyon. And it's just taken a while for that wave of erosion to get up here. Does that make sense? Yes, and that is beyond cool. That is okay. really cool. <laughs> it's, kinda, it's a little bit too simple, but it's, it's fun to think of uh, 
if, if a river makes its way off a highland, it's kind of like a waterfall, like Niagara Falls. And, you know, Niagara Falls is, is uh, famous because you can, uh, a geologist can measure the rate at which Niagara Falls is actually backwasting or moving upstream as erosion occurs. So that regression of a nick point upstream is, is really exactly um, how, at least I personally think, you know, I think that explains why is the erosion hitting the fan here now when it eroded more, uh, you know, in more ancient times in Grand Canyon. It started there, and that wave of incision has worked its way up here, and it's here now. To just break it down so that it's not uh, the ivory tower thing. Uh, so it lets people in and understand this seems a skill. Do they train for it, or are, you, is, are people just sort of gifted with uh, this? I mean, I think both. Uh, Chris, you know, he's my go-to example because he's so good at it. Um, he was an educator for Outward Bound, so he learned how to talk to people, you know. Um, it's a whole, there's definitely a whole field, and some people are just good at it. Um, I I enjoy doing it when I get to, like I said, be in a place and, and, and connect people to the places because it's so much easier. And you could just see it and feel it and, and look around and picture it in your mind. Um, and so I, that's, you know, that's the way I like to start with trying to communicate the things that I study and, you know, some of the topics that we talk about at Science Moab. Um, but yeah, gifted science communicators can make all the difference. And um, we actually do a lot. Uh, you know, everybody knows this, but for like the Science on Tap events, we, um, we have everybody practice with like a panel of us. And we say, you know, nope, don't know what that means. Get rid of that word. That's too heady. Like, don't know what that is. Um, to get the talks to a point where nobody should ever, you know, sit there and feel like they don't understand what's being said because all of it can be translated. Everyone is capable of understanding these concepts. It's just, it's not their fault when they don't. It's the person who's telling them about it. It's their their responsibility to make sure that everybody can understand it. And so we spend a lot of time trying to make sure in these live events that, that that's what's happening. I'm just smiling right now. I'm just warm as toast about this whole thing. But it, cred builds upon itself, doesn't it? It's amazing to see something develop quite this big. Even though it was in your sights, are you surprised at all? Um, I am warmed by the response. I mean, I think... Oh, live events, my goodness. Um, another exciting announcement that um, we haven't told people about quite yet, but breaking, live breaking on your show, um, is we actually just received another grant from the Sloan Foundation, um, the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, to put on um, three live events this year um, that are part of the Science on Screen series. So it's an extension of our of our uh, Mad Max and Scientists event that we had last year where we showed clips from Mad Max and we had scientists talk about dust. Um, and so we're going to actually have three more of those this year um, in the springtime in an outdoor COVID-safe setting. So we're just so excited about that. And so, um, yes, I'm, I'm just it's just such a phenomenal feeling to be excited about something and have other people share that excitement with you. And just to be like, we love this place. We love science. We want you to love it with us. You know, we want to build this, this movement around saying that 
you know, understanding places matters. It matters to, that that we understand how they work so that we can be informed stewards of, of these places that we care so much about. And so it's just the best feeling to have had people respond to that and want to be involved and to know more and to be part of this, this movement, um, this movement of, of science, place-based science. Congratulations. My goodness. Yay. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for breaking the word here on This Week in Moab in your alma mater studio, KZMU. Christina Young, where are the various places where we can catch you on the World Wide Web? I know there's sciencemoab.org. I mean, I think everybody should follow Science Moab because that's where where it's all really happening. That's all the good stuff. So we're on Instagram and Facebook. and we do our best through those, you know, those mediums, which are increasingly a part of our at-home lives, um, to communicate some pretty cool science through there. So be sure to check them out. Congratulations and thanks again. Thank you so much. It's always so great to talk with you. You too.